0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Nixon Land, The Rise of a President and the Fracturing of America by Rick Perlstein. I think this is one of the best pieces of American history writing I've ever read. It's a really intriguing look at Nixon's rise as a political figure and what it says about the dynamics of America in the 60s and 70s, which in turn say quite a bit about the dynamics of America today. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 297, As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams. Part Two. Last week, we got to talk about one of the most unique women in the Heian era, really in all of Japanese history, to my mind. Today, we're going to talk about two of her rough contemporaries before wrapping up with some general thoughts about the historical legacy of the women of Heian, Japan. The first of these is Akazome Emon, and once again, I have the pleasure of telling you that we don't even know precisely when she was born. Somewhere in the 950s to 960s is the best we can do, with the traditional range being somewhere between 957 and 964. Even her parentage is unclear. Her mother got divorced and remarried through the course of her life and was in the process of leaving the first husband and shacking up with the second when young Akazome was born. Akazome Emon was raised by the second husband, a poet and political functionary named Akazome Tokimochi. Akazome Tokimochi is, of course, the one who gave his daughter the name she's known by, because remember, these women are not known publicly by their personal names, and most of the time we don't even know their personal names at all. In this case, Tokimochi had attained the rank of Emon, a type of palace guard, Hence, his daughter was known as Akazome Emon. Tokimochi was also a fairly accomplished poet, and apparently he trained his daughter in the same skills, because the first dateable records we have of her involve a poetic exchange with one of the most important men of the era, the powerful Fujiwara clan regent, Michitaka, in the 970s. Around this same time, Akazome Emon made her way to the imperial capital, as a lady-in-waiting to the daughter of the powerful Minamoto no Masazane. Now, confusingly, these are not the Minamoto clan you're thinking of, the future shogunal samurai clan. Those are the Sewa Minamoto, so-called because they can trace their ancestry back to the Emperor Sewa. These are the Uda Minamoto, who are at this point two generations removed from Emperor Uda, who is honestly totally unimportant at this point, Short version, different Minamoto, still a line descended from the emperors, and one that a few centuries down the road is going to branch off into some pretty powerful clans, so hey, nice place to land a job. Good for you, Akazome Emon. Apparently, she made a good impression, too, because she would end up permanently attached to the household of Minamoto no Masazane's daughter, Minamoto no Rinshi and Minamoto no Rinshi would in turn end up extremely attached, which is to say married, to one of the most powerful men of the age, Fujiwara no Michinaga, the brother of that powerful regent Michitaka, with whom Akazome Emon had exchanged poetry back in the day. So the short version is that Akazome Emon was fortunate enough to end up pretty close to the center of Heian, Japan, She was also fortunate enough to do something fairly rare in her time, or depending on how cynical you are, any time, get married to someone she seems to have genuinely loved. That someone was Oeno Masahira, a scholar and poet in his own right. The two seemed to have enjoyed genuine affection for each other after their marriage sometime around 979. Akazome Emon would accompany him on his two postings to the provinces, both times in Nowari province to the east, and the couple would have three children together, two daughters and a son. When not off with her husband in the provinces, Emon continued to closely associate with the ladies-in-waiting of Minamoto no Rinshi, which is actually the thing she's best known for. Remember that whole confused mess from the Murasaki Shikibu and Seishonagon episodes about the time the emperor had two primary wives whose courts were competing with each other? So Minamoto no Rinshi's husband, Fujiwara no Michinaga, is the reason that happened. He wanted his daughter married as the primary wife to the emperor to secure his grasp over the throne, but didn't really have a good reason to get rid of the old empress, so he just made up a title for a second empress, which, you have to admit, is a pretty creative solution. Because of her proximity to Michinaga, Akazome Emon became indirectly associated with Michinaga's daughter, the Empress Choshi. Also associated with this Empress, none other than the great writer Murasaki Shikibu. Indeed, Akazome Emon appears briefly in Murasaki Shikibu's own diary. Quote, the wife of the governor of Tanba is known to those around Her Majesty and His Excellency, which is to say Choshi and the Emperor, as Masahira Emon in this case, using her husband's last name, not her father's. She may not be a genius, but she has great poise and does not feel that she has to compose a poem on everything she sees merely because she is a poet. Those poems we know, even those composed for casual occasions, leave us all embarrassed about our own." Now, this might seem a bit unkind at first glance, but remember, Murasaki Shikibu is a person who referred to one of the greatest poets in Japanese history, Sei Shonagon, as an obnoxious show-off, so coming from her, this is about as glowing a review as you can get. And indeed, by all accounts, Akazome Emon was highly regarded in her day. A famous collection of medieval anecdotes, the Zoshi describes the famous monk and poet Ryosen comparing the works of Izumi Shikibu and Akazome Emon as such. Quote, Izumi Shikibu and Akazome Emon are both poetic sages, yet ten out of the twelve screen poems Akazome composed for the 70th birthday celebrations of Minamoto no Rinshi were superb. Many of her poems for the Kayanoin poetry contest were superb as well. For screen poems, Izumi hardly compares with Akazome, Unquote. Fujiwara no Michinaga, Minamoto Norinchi's husband, apparently thought so much of the talents of his wife's lady-in-waiting that he, in essence, gave her a job. Akazome Emon was responsible for helping answer some of the poems the regent received in his own regular correspondence. Akazome Emon did the same for her own son, Oeno Takachika. Her collection of her own work describes her son's struggling marriage, due in large part to the demands of his work as a court chamberlain. In despair, the young man asked his mother for help writing something to assuage his wife's feelings. Akazome Emon drafted up a poem. The restless snipe beats its wings at dawn, Awakening I wonder how many times you have tossed and turned. Now, this might seem a bit smothering to modern audiences. The idea of a mom writing her son love poetry that he can send to his partner certainly seems, to modern sensibilities, a bit weird. But in the conceptions of the period, there was nothing particularly unusual about it. One of the roles of a good mother was to help her son out, and clearly he needed the help in this instance. If you're wondering, it worked for a bit. Takachika's wife moved in with the family for a brief time, something of a departure for the norm for a lot of Heian women who preferred to maintain independent households. However, the marriage did eventually fall apart in a way that I at least find somewhat darkly comical. There was an incident where Takachika's wife accidentally sent Takachika a letter intended for another man, presumably one she was either having an affair with or interested in having an affair with. Akazome Emon once again composed the poetic reply herself With whom are you exchanging letters again? What a cold heart to cause yet more pain than those sorrows adrift the floating bridge. Akazome Emon didn't just help her son's love life out with her poetry. The Konjaku Monagatari, the collection of tales that include the story of the bandit chief Hakamadare. Also, include an anecdote about a poem Akazome wrote to the regent Fujiwara no Michinaga, expressing her desire for her son's success. Moved, Michinaga appointed Takachika to the fairly prestigious post of governor of Izumi Province. However, perhaps her most important contributions were to the career of her husband. Today, Akazome Emon is sometimes portrayed as this stereotype of a lovelorn woman who spends all her time at home pining for her husband, but in fact, if you look at how the two are actually described as interacting, they're way closer to political partners than to some schmaltzy Romeo and Juliet nonsense. Another story in the Fukurozoshi describes this well. The tale goes that one Fujiwara no Kinto, after being passed over for promotion, decides to resign from government life. He asks two respected gentlemen of the court to write a fancy preface to his resignation letter. Their names are Ki no Tadana and Oe no Mochitoki, but don't worry about them too much, they're never going to come up again. However, Fujiwara no Kinto didn't like what they wrote, and so went to a third man, none other than Oe no Masahira, and asked him to take a crack at it. Masahira agreed, but was really stressed out by the whole experience, He couldn't for the life of him figure out why the previous efforts writing this preface were unacceptable to Fujiwara no Kinto. To him, they seemed like perfectly fine bits of writing. Deeply perplexed, he asked his dear wife Akazome Emon, who quickly noted that Fujiwara no Kinto was a very proud man. He was, after all, a Fujiwara, and they were supposed to be Japan's second family after the imperial house but instead he kept being passed over for promotion. She said this is probably why he's so upset, because he's been passed over repeatedly despite this prestigious lineage. Masahira looked over the first attempts at writing the preface, lo and behold they made no mention of Fujiwara no Kinto's distinguished lineage, and so he included that in his preface and Kinto loved it. The whole thing was so moving that when it was delivered, the court instantly became sympathetic to poor sad old Kinto, and he was granted essentially a pity raise to a higher court rank. At first glance, Akazome looks like a bit player here, but the key thing about this story is that she is more plugged into the politics of the court than her own husband. She's the one who has the key insight about how to frame this story in a way that will appeal to the man making the request and to the court more generally. So Akazome Emon was, in her time, very highly regarded, as you can probably tell. Today, though, she's fallen off in popularity pretty substantially. In large part, you can actually blame the very things that made her poems successful in the first place. Her best-known ones cleverly play on court politics and ritual, and that means many of them are very hard to appreciate without a clear sense of the context the original poem was written in, not just generally, but the specific occasion that prompted the poem. Otherwise, the whole thing can come off as a bit basic or uninteresting. For example, one of her famous scroll paintings, which plays on an image of courtiers coming to call on the Fujiwara clan regent on the second day of the new year for a big fancy banquet, involves a pun between the word for spring, because remember this is the lunar new year, so it happens around the start of spring, and the word to spread, as well as a broader sense of the poem's context. The actual poem is purple sleeves layered one after another this site is what is joyful about spring's arrival, or, in Japanese, The purple sleeves are those of the courtiers calling on the Fujiwara regent. This is the site that brings Akazome Emon joy, and it might be a bit hard to understand why, after all they're not coming to visit her, But remember, they are coming to visit the husband of her boss, the lady-in-waiting Minamoto no So this is a celebration of her patron's ascent politically. It also has this sense of been there, seen that to it. After all, she's seen this sight enough to know that it's her favorite thing about spring, which is a season with a lot of really nice things. Which makes sense, because this is from pretty late in Akazome's literary career, so the poem can be read as an admission that Akazome and her patrons have matured politically or less charitably that they've just started to get old. So much fun nuance here, right? But it's also very hard to understand if you don't know Akazome Emon's own background and history, and therefore it's hard for this poem to stay relevant in the same way that say a nice Heian love poem stays relevant. As to Akazome Emon's eventual fate, well, surprise, surprise, I can't really tell you. Her last recorded historical appearance is in 1041, so clearly she died at some point after that, but we don't know precisely when. Though we do know that she did outlive her beloved husband who died in 1012, and that she lived long enough to meet her grandson. Our second subject for today is known by one of two names, once again, not her personal name to which we have no clues at all. However, here we don't even have a fancy court name taken from her male relatives. Indeed, the most famous English language translation of her work begins its introduction with a very poignant phrase, quote, 1,000 years ago, a woman in Japan without a name wrote a book without a title. The author of this book, who has no name, is a woman commonly known as the Daughter of Sugawara no Takasue, or Takasue's Daughter for short. However, the famous translator Ivan Morris, in his version of her work, gave her the name Lady Sarashina, Sarashina being a place in central Japan that is alluded to in one of her poems, which became the name her famous work, her diary, is known by, the Sarashina Nikki or Sarashina Diary. This is the name I'm going to use, both because I think it's really weird to refer to someone only as so-and-so's daughter, and because Morris' translation of her work, which he titled As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams, made a real impression on me as an undergraduate. I read it as a freshman in my Intro to Japanese History course, shout out to Dr. William Johnston if you're listening, and I remember it really speaking to me. It provided me with a really fascinating experience that can sometimes happen in a history class or when you're studying history, where you feel like you're really starting to get to know someone who lived centuries before you did. Anyway, before we get into that, who even was Lady Sarashina? Well, she was from a family of little consequence. This is not someone like Akazome Emon, only slightly removed from the epicenter of power. Ivan Morris describes the Sugawara family as being of the Heian middle class. Not middle class in the sense we'd think of it today, but in the sense of being literally in the middle, between the elite courtiers who ran the Heian government and average people. This is a group of mid-level bureaucrats and managers, the ones who implemented the decisions being made by the wealthy and powerful. Indeed, Morris notes correctly that Lady Sarashina's father, Sugawara no Takasue, would be a complete historical non-entity were it not for the fact of his supremely talented daughter. In this specific case, the Sugawara family served as provincial officials responsible for going into the provinces and implementing the dictates of the court. The people who took such postings were usually descended from the high nobility, In Lady Sarashina's case, her father was distantly descended from the great scholar and anti-government rebel, Sugawara no Michizane, later deified as the god Tenjin, to appease his angry spirit. Her mother, meanwhile, was from one of the lesser branches of the mighty Fujiwara clan. This sort of ancestry meant that usually had the money and influence for the basic preconditions of government service, an education, and the connections necessary to get a job, but that you weren't connected enough to get anything particularly desirable. You see, provincial positions could be very powerful. After all, Heian itself is far away, so if you're a senior provincial official, you have a lot of power to do as you please with. Even so, these postings were considered undesirable. Provincial postings meant by definition long periods of absence from the capital, which was both the center of political life and the center of cultural life. People who made a career out of that kind of work would never advance very far. In the world of court ranks used to grade the Heian aristocracy, they usually never rose beyond the fifth ranks, just about halfway up the food chain. Lady Sarashina's father would cap out at junior fifth rank, lower grade. Her husband would make it one grade higher, junior fifth rank, upper grade. As for Lady Sarashina herself, well, once again, there's a lot we do not know. We do know her actual year of birth, in 1008, so right around the zenith of the careers of famous women like Seishonagon and Murasaki Shikibu. And by the by, Murasaki Shikibu will be very important to this story. As previously mentioned, Lady Sarashina's father was a middling official, and when she was nine, he received a new posting as a provincial governor in the east. And no, we don't know exactly where. Her diary describes it as, quote, a part of the country so remote that it lies beyond the end of the Great East Road, unquote. In other words, beyond what's more or less modern Tokyo. Based on her later descriptions of her travels, my guess would be that she was somewhere either in northern Chiba or southern Ibaraki prefectures, so either the eastern or northeastern bits of the greater Tokyo metro area today. Eastern Japan was, at this point, not that far removed from the part of the map with Here There Be Dragons written on it. It was remote and underdeveloped and just generally not the kind of place a cultured young woman from the capital would find terribly interesting. She was stuck in this remote place for three years. When she was 12, her father was recalled to the capital. Lady Sirashina was very pleased. She decided to record her experiences of the heart of Japanese culture in a diary and would eventually continue that diary for the rest of her life, and this is the source that we have for her writing and her life. The diary begins with her father's recall, and Lady Sirashina does not long dwell on life in the provinces. The only real reminiscence she has about her time there involves the one thing that brought her joy. Quote, Even shut away in the provinces, I somehow came to hear that the world contained things known as tales, and from that moment, my greatest desire was to read them all for myself. To idle away the time, my sister, my stepmother, and others in the household would tell me stories from the tales, including episodes about Genji, the Shining Prince, but since they had to depend on their memories, they could not possibly tell me all I wanted to know... And their stories only made me more curious than ever. Unquote. Her longing to know more about these stories was such that she would pray before a statue of Yakshi one of the Buddhas, not for health or long life, but for a chance to go to Heian and read all the tales. Apparently, Yakshi likes a good book himself because her wish was granted and her father recalled. Lady Sarashino's description of the provinces and her travels through them is a bit thin. Most of her recollections of the three month journey to the capital involve phrases like, quote, We were in Musashi, a province without a single charming place to recommend it. Unquote. One gets the impression that, more than anything, she just wanted to get to the capital and begin enjoying life at the center, rather than dwelling on the process of getting there. And when she finishes the three-month journey to Heian, she does finally get her wish. Lady Sarashina is able to devote as much time and energy to devouring fiction as she wanted. In particular, as you may have guessed, she was extremely fascinated by one new work that was making big waves at the time called The Tale of Genji, which, even just a few years out from its release, I guess you'd call it, was already a literary sensation. Lady Sarashina was also lucky enough not to have to go to the provinces again. The traditions of female independence at the time allowed her to maintain a household in Heian, and accepting a couple of pilgrimages to temples and shrines in central Japan, she would remain in the city for the rest of her life. The mood of the diary is, as you might expect, initially rather elated. Here she is, just where she wants to be. However, things will very quickly turn melancholy, spurred by a series of tragedies. First, in 1021, her nurse, one of the women most responsible for her upbringing, dies in an epidemic that rages through Heian. Just two years later, her beloved sister dies giving birth to a child. Then, finally, a famous woman of the Fujiwara clan, who Lady Sarashina doesn't even know personally, but whose calligraphy and wit she greatly admires, will also die. This will lead young lady Sarashina down an increasingly melancholy rabbit hole, as she will become obsessed with the idea of the temporary nature of life. Now, it is true that a lot of her literary contemporaries were fashionably interested in the idea of Mono no Awade, the melancholic idea of the impermanence of all things in the world. But this was not a sort of poetic sensibility, Lady Sarashina appears to have been genuinely upset by the realization that her life was changing, and that some of the people in it were gone for good. Ivan Morris calls her timid and hypersensitive, and points to many areas in the text where she is moved near to tears by literally any change in her life, including leaving behind that Yakshi-Nyorai statue she'd once prayed to. And there's definitely something to that assessment. One gets the impression that Lady Sarashina was just uncomfortable with any kind of change. For example, presumably out of nerves, she avoided taking the one avenue of work open to her, as a lady-in-waiting in the imperial court, until she was 31. By that point, she was just too old to establish a strong reputation or advance very far. She would never make it into the imperial court herself. Her shy and sensitive nature didn't fit well with a world where the ability to boldly proclaim one's genius by thinking on your feet was an essential quality for success. I mean, imagine this young woman who is moved to tears by leaving a statue behind having to go toe-to-toe with someone like Seishonagon. She'd be eaten alive. Nor was her love life terribly successful. She would eventually get married at the age of 36, which by the standards of the time was pretty close to old age. Before that, she had precisely one serious flirtation, with a courtier who romanced her with his poetic lyrics. She doesn't even mention his appearance. One would imagine that in this sort of scenario, a woman like Izumi Shikibu would have this guy wrapped around her finger by the end of her second stanza. Lady Sarashina, though, appears to have been too shy to ever make a move, and the whole thing just fizzled. Really, her closest relationship was with her father, even above her husband, who is barely mentioned in the diary. Sugawara no Takasue comes off as, at least in my mind, kind of uninteresting and somewhat overbearing, but she does seem to have genuinely loved him nonetheless. Their relationship is really the only one Lady Sarashina spends a lot of time on. Faced with a life that frankly seemed to be going nowhere pretty fast, Lady Sarashina's main escape was her love of the tales, especially the tale of Genji. She loved to imagine herself as a part of those stories of passion and romance, and had a particular fondness for the character of Lady Ukifune. Ukifune is the princess who at the very end of the tale of Genji is caught in a love triangle between Genji's son, Kaoru, and one prince, Nyo. As I've mentioned many times before, I really do not like the tale of Genji, and this particular section comes off as very creepy to me, because Lady Ukifune will eventually attempt to drown herself to escape these men's passions before becoming a nun and running off to the mountains to join a monastery. I suppose there's no accounting for taste, though. There was, however, an increasingly wide chasm between Lady Sarashina's romantic dreams and the reality of her own life. In the end, both her husband and her father will, of course, die, and she will be left all alone. Eventually, Lady Sarashina will come to regret all the years she spent reading tales instead of finding her own meaning in life. She will turn to religion for comfort, hoping to find the grace of the Buddha and be reborn. One of the final moments of the tale is a dream she records of an encounter with the Amida Buddha, a major figure of East Asian Buddhism who promises to return on the day of her death and deliver her to the paradise of the Pure Land. After having this dream, Lady Sarashna will devote herself fully to religious pursuits. The final entry of the diary reads, Many years have passed, but whenever I think about that sad, dreamlike time, my heart is thrown into turmoil and my eyes darken, so that even now I cannot clearly remember all that happened. My family went to live elsewhere, and I stayed forlornly by myself in our old house. One day, when I was thinking bitterly of my sad condition, I sent this poem to someone from whom I had not heard for a long time. Wildly the sagebrush grows outside this house where no one comes to call, and my tears well up, like the drops of dew upon those leaves. It was to a nun I sent my poem, and she replied, Your sagebrush and your dew belong to worldly homes. Think how overgrown the thickets are in the cell of one who finally renounced the world. Now, despite Lady Sirashina's own obscurity in her lifetime, her diary has become a major fixture of classical Japanese literature. Segments of it, though usually not the whole thing, are included in high school literature courses in Japan. Much of the credit for that belongs to one Fujiwara Teika, who honestly deserves credit for preserving much of the literary memory of many of the women we've just talked about. He was an early medieval poet and scholar who took it upon himself to produce an authoritative list of the best writers and poets of the Heian period, and he included a fair number of women on his list. He was also very taken by the Diary of Lady Sarashina and promoted it as a fine piece of writing. Once again, we do not have a precise date of death for Lady Sarashina, all we know is that she died sometime after 1059. So now that we've looked at these three very different biographies, what have we learned? Well, I do think it's really interesting to consider just how instrumental women were in setting some of the patterns of Japanese literature. We've got three women here, and two more we've talked about before, Murasaki Shikibu and Sei Shonagon, who together not only represent important writers of their age, but canonical ones, the ones you'd study in an intro to literature course on the period. Frankly, that's extremely unusual for pretty much any period, let alone for a thousand years ago. If you were to look at, say, roughly contemporary China, the Tang Dynasty, for example, well, there are a couple of pretty famous female poets from that dynasty, but they still tend to get overshadowed by your Du Fus and your Li Bai's, the really famous male poets of the period. They're not canonical figures in the way that these women are canonical. Nor is that status anything particularly new. This is not some latter-day reimagining of the Heian canon of literature. As I mentioned, these writers have been celebrated since Japan's medieval period. Indeed, Ivan Morris even provides a translation in, As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams, of a dialogue between two Edo-era scholars debating the merits of Lady Sarashina's writing so these texts have been important for a very long time. And some of the women were pretty connected in their day. Izumi Shikibu was, of course, not that far removed from the imperial court thanks to her affairs. Akazome Emon was both a celebrated writer and a confidant for many of the powerful people around her. It is important not to oversell this. We don't even know the exact dates or names for many of these women, who are defined in large part by the men in their lives, and who exercise power and influence only indirectly through those men. As the story of Lady Sarashina so amply demonstrates, women really did have to follow a set path to influence at this time, as a lady-in-waiting or the wife of a prominent figure. There weren't really other paths open to them. Having your diary discovered for its brilliant writing after your death is not really what I would call a sound strategic plan for fame and fortune. Still, these women are remarkable for their accomplishments in their own right, not simply as a second fiddle to the men around them, and their stories are fascinating for what they illuminate of life in Heian, Japan, and they're worth remembering for that reason. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit your questions for the 300th episode, which is coming up pretty soon, go to our website at that's isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R dot or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for a much-requested episode, a biography of the fascinating Meiji-era scholar Lafcadio Hearn.